Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features A2, a former IDP and refugee from Kaya State. A2 shares his experience of growing up under a brutal military regime. As a young teenager, he fled his village to avoid military forced labor. He then spent 12 years living in a refugee camp in northern Thailand. His story is an important reminder of the harrowing reality that many people in Myanmar, particularly those in ethnic areas, once again face under a brutal military dictatorship. Let's start the conversation. Hi, A2. Hello, nice to meet you. Nice, nice to meet you too. Um, so, so A2, um, what I thought we would do is maybe just start with, with your story. I do not have things in order, um, Suzanne and Ruth. I just want to literally um, tell to you about uh, what I went through. And uh, maybe uh, 33 years ago, I think, um, and now it's totally, you know, we talk about two, three generations here. So um, the only thing I can tell you is the, the one thing that's still, uh, you know, the same is the, the regime, you know, they were, they were killing people and they are killing people. And it, I mean, this is not change, you know, this will change. Yeah, so we are talking about different times here, but I'm um, trying to put things together. So yes, um, I'm Etu, my name is Etu Here, and I belong to Kaya or Kareni as it is known. And um, I suppose I have to go back uh, as far as 1988, uh, where everything happened for me and changed my life, really. So. Um, Obviously, the, then in 1988, you all know that uh, there was a big uprising against the previous military regime. And the same thing happened. Uh, they cracked down, they killed. And, you know, I was told, we were told that at least 3,000 people were killed back then. Um, a lot of them were students and then monks and eventually they also civilians. But the, um, the coup back then was quick, you know, they, they crushed, they killed, and then they patrol quickly. <clears throat> so the, um, uh, it, it was quick, you know, they killed a lot of people on the streets, and then people were terrified, and a lot of them were arrested, and they, they went to jail, basically, and a lot of them died during the, you know, serving the, their terms. And then quickly, a matter of weeks, they control and then it went on. But the thing is, the war in the ethnic state never finished there, you know. The ethnic uh, armed groups uh, intensified their fighting with the military regime. And what followed was terrible because um, back then they arrested people for forced labor and they... Um, they use human, uh, we call it uh, hum human shields, where they use young men, old men for uh, to clear mine, landmines. And so I was just into my teenage, you know, a young teenager, and uh, there was rumors, a lot of rumors going around, say that, um, you know, if they could not find a, a grown-up man, they would arrest a young man for whatever, uh, forced labor or... Uh, recruits. So I was very, it was very unsafe for me. I did not feel uh, happy. So I went around with my old brother um, and other young men in, in, in the village, um, Heidi, you know. But then I, it dawned on me. I had my father uh, already joined the movement 10 years previous. So my, I knew my father was on the time Burmese border somewhere, which I did not know at the time. So I decided that I would take the chance to join my father, who I had not seen for 
10 years. Uh, I think he left in 1979, I think. So I walked across the border from KR State to Thailand. It's, it's such a, you know, mountainous and it's a very tough terrains that you have to walk through. So I went. So I ended up, uh, I ended up in Thai Burmese border, but still on the Burmese side. And so I remember clearly my dad got the news before I arrived where he was. And there was a kind of uh, merchant, you know, marketplace for illegal traders where they brought their, you know, cows and, and buffaloes to sell in to Thailand, you know. So I went with them and then I eventually I saw my dad uh, coming toward me. He didn't recognize me, but I did recognize him. But 10 years between us. So I was kind of shy and all, you know, grew up old. And so he walked past me. And he said, I heard my son was here somewhere, somewhere. But I, I follow him and he turned around and he asked me, uh, are you this? And I said, yeah. And it was, it took me quite some months to, you know, to catch up. But my dad was very um, approachable, very easy. So he was, you know, easy for me to, to communicate. So we managed to catch up. And then we were about three what, two, three years, we were kind of running into Thailand out again in back and forth because of the fighting. And we were eventually, finally pushed into Thailand in uh, 1992, I think. So we eventually, I then became refugee, you know, as uh, legally. And um, so this is my short, short story, I suppose. Um, and I spent 12 years in Thailand as a refugee in northern Thailand. See, I met also near Chiang Mai, if you like. Uh, so, but uh, I went on to, you know, um, to study. I went um, in a school, high school, and I finished my high school in the cap. And uh, I, my interest was in English, obviously. I, I did my best. Um, and then where I evolved and started to work in um, schools a bit before I came to Ireland with my family. Um, so I came to love Kerry, where I live with my family. And uh, yes, I, but I never thought that we would get, you know, go back to the same way, you know, the old way back 33 years ago. So it was quite a uh, shocking for me and uh, very disappointed at the same time. And um, I've been very, um, you know, trying my best to help. And I've been in touch with my uh, sisters who are obviously um, stuck in Kaya State and also uh, some on the borders. So it's worry time like everybody else, really, for me. So, A2, when you mentioned as a young teenager, moving or, or having to go to Thailand or the Thai border, like that's not just like a little bus trip. Like that is you trekking through jungles. Um, it, it's a serious ordeal, I imagine. Um, you have things like dengue fever. You have lack of access to food and water on that journey. Um, landmines, the military. Um was that a scary time for you? Or do you think when you're young, you're kind of braver or you don't know the danger that lies ahead? Well, it's, um, it's very scary because um, the wars, wars going on uh, all over us, you know, around us. And um, I was kind of excited at the same time about worrying because um, we left, I left my village the, uh, in the middle of the summer, so it, it would be it would have been very dry and hot time, as you know. And and then shortly after that, we got rain. So I got to the Thai Burmese border in, in kind of beginning of rainy seasons. So um, and we did not have mosquito net. You know, just this is simple thing that uh, simple thing that you could have, but we did not get that. So yes, mosquito and the most hard thing for me was being lonely. You know. Um, homesick because um chaos is, is quite hilly hilly in a lot of mountains but when we talk about time burmese border we talk about another level of uh, forests and jungles and 
and very few people. Um, suddenly, I was in the middle of the jungle and very big mountains and and tiny houses, bamboo houses. So, being uh, loneliness was terrible, and also malaria was my nightmare. You know, I got malaria so many times, and I do not remember how many it's really. So everything was very basic. Uh, you move around with uh, people and families in your like war, 200 people. And then a lot of uh, them were uh, would be like soldiers protecting you and their families. And so all the moves a lot of the time, really. So in 1989 was a time when I go there and I, I spent, I, mean, I took two years of, to finish one class. You know, I was six, I was in sixth class in 88. And then I, I went back to the same class at the same time. And then we moved into Thailand. And I was, so that I spent about three years trying to finish one academy year of school then. And then that happened again in 1992, where we were um, moved, uh, pushed to move to, further into Thailand to another camp. So again, everything had to start from the beginning, you know, school building, houses. So I repeated the same year twice again. So by the time I finished my high school, I was quite old. I, I want to uh, say something here, you know, because back then, 33 years ago, we did not have TV. We did not have um, telephone. I have never saw a telephone, you know, until I went to Thailand. Uh, and uh, in no internet, so people did not know what was going on at the time, you know, on the borders. And uh, I remember terrible things happened in current state, especially because the crime then were, you know, so strong uh, still. So uh, the fighting there was so uh, serious and so intense, and intense that a lot of people got killed and a lot of villages and villages were burned down. And the outside world uh, hardly knew about it because we did not have um, social media like we do now. Uh, so going forward now, uh, when the young a person leave home now, they, at least they, they left home with a, a mobile phone. You know, so we, we know what's going on. And, you know, but 33 years ago, 34 years ago, you. You didn't know. It took me six months to find out my sister was, she died and during her labor. And I didn't know that I thought she was still alive. But back then, you know, the communication was so poor that it took months to get some news across the border, you know. So things like this happened. Um, it's terrible. And then you, you go, you're going through it again now. It's it just, it's quiet. It's quite tough for, for us, really. Did your mum and your, your siblings, did your mum and your sister stay in your home village? When, when I left, yeah, my mum uh, and my sisters and my younger brothers uh, left behind. That must have been so hard for you to make that decision to go and, and leave and, and with, like you say, with no communication and no way of keeping in contact. It just is, it's quite hard to imagine. Yes, um, it was not easy uh, decision, but then I knew that, um, how would I say, I was not happy where I was. And, and, um, and on, on, at the same time, I knew my father was there. So um, I knew that if, at least if I left home, then my dad would have been, uh, uh, would be there for me. But I did not know anything about how he was and where he was and how the situation in the condition was like. And it is quite tough. Apart from having him there, uh, it was quite, as I said, very lonely was the thing that really uh, tough for me. It took me a whole year or at least six months to get used to having no friends, you know. Who did you travel um, with? How did you know the way? I found um, there were so many young people trying to escape to enjoy the army, you know, so I was very young. So I, I knew I was not allowed to join the army yet, but I just told them I want to go and, and be with my dad. And the soldier knew who my, my father was. So, um, and I, I did promise my mom that I will not join the 
you know, the guerrilla forces. So I, I promised her that I will, I will go back to school, which I did anyway, so I'm glad. <laughs> uh, and a lot of my friends who joined the, the guerrilla forces either got killed or, you know, they, they, have, uh, they had a hard time compared to what I went through, you know, because I went to school. Uh, so I continued uh, my education as far as I could go. So I suppose yeah, that was the right decision. A2, what's, your father was part of the resistance, was he? Yes, um, he was uh, arrested by the uh, military, uh, the previous military regime for helping the, the rebels. We called them uh, at the time, they were called the rebels. So he served two years, uh, a year and a half, I think, and full slavery and prison. But he escaped. Uh, it's funny, um, I don't know if you've been to Naypyidaw, but um, he was sent to and around Naypyidaw where he, he was forced to work with about 3,000 prisoners back in 1978 and 79. After he escaped, uh, he officially joined the rebel group, the Karani-Kenipakirani army, yeah. Not, not to fight, but uh, I think he was a judge uh, in the the guerrilla forces, yeah. Because he was too old to serve in the army. And A2, I mean, there's no exaggeration when we say this is a brutal military, like one of the worst I've ever heard of in terms of what people are suffering. And even back then, but it's the exact same things happening today, some really horrific stories of torture, people being imprisoned, arresting innocent people just to get their family members, people who are not involved in the resistance. How do people like you who have kind of come through this before, how, how did you find the strength to kind of keep going? This, is, uh, this can be very um, difficult to, to go through, you know, even though uh, we, we like to think that we are resilient people, but we are human at the end of, you know, we're human only. I think as a survivor, um, you know, if you are desperate, you go to fight for everything to survive. And um, the Burmese people, the ethnic people have been through for so long that they, uh, like you said, this is the worst I have seen in my lifetime. This is the worst, um, you know, military regime that I've seen in my life. And um, I think uh, what keep people going is um, they, as I said, they're totally fed up with it. They have enough. They have seen in all uh, along, and then they do. The main thing they do not want their children. They do not want their children to go through it again. So I think whatever uh, happened, they, they are fighting for for their children really. And we are all we, we do not want to see it again to go through again and again, you know, I can't believe it. My mom went through it during the, the Japanese and then she, she went through it all along and then now she's going through it again, you know, she's in her 90s. You know, it's, it's very tough. Um, the more they, how would I say, the more oppressive and brutal they are, it's gave her more strength to, to fight them, you know. It's pulled her together, the more you become united, uh, ethnic and the Burmese, the Burmans, if you recall, want to call them, are more than united than ever have ever seen. You know, um, in terms of their coordination, uh, they work together like you see in Dublin. You know, the Burmese, the Korean, the ethnic uh, together, and I, I feel like there is a togetherness here uh, in, in during this fight. So this is why uh, the stronger is. I mean, this. Um, it's still going on for so long. If you think about February the 1st, they cannot control yet at all. They could not stay stronger themselves to, to say, look, we are, uh, everything's under control. It is not. Every day you are stronger for them too. They have to keep killing. The more they kill, the more um, it's become, it's harder for them now. So they end up releasing 700 prisoners previously, a few days ago, I think which should have never been arrested, these people, you know. Uh, a lot of them, I heard, were children. And, uh, you know, it's nothing to do with the children. So if you can, if, for example, if they're looking for me and they cannot find me, 
they take my brother or my sister or they take my parent, you know. But before it did not happen like this, um, they will look for you. If they could not find it, they will not arrest somebody else. But now uh, they do, you know, they take your parent, they take your brother or sister or your wife, your husband. Yeah, so this is the, the worst uh, military regime that I have seen. A2, just when you were saying like in terms of being um, in Thailand or in the camps, like there is a kind of difference between an IDP and a refugee. Um, I think an IDP is like where you are kind of caught within your border and then it's when you cross the border into another country you become a refugee. So you spend some time within the country kind of trapped as well as in Thailand. What is that like? What is camp life like? Like it's not, it's not a good existence, is it? It's not a place people want to be for a long time. Uh, you mean as IDP or as a refugee in another country? Well, let's talk about IDP first, which we know there is so many at the moment. What what is that like yeah. for people? Well, well, even in your time, and I don't think much has changed. To be an IDP is um, is 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 worse than in a way to be. A refugee in other countries because if you are in an, uh, a refugee in another country, at least you have to follow the rules of that country, and uh, especially if there is a rule of law like Thailand um, uh, or you know fairly good country, uh, you know the, uh, there is kind of a system that you have to follow. But if you a refugee as an IDP eternally displaced person, there's, there was there is no rule. At the moment, especially now, there's no rule. So that means you can be arrested, you can be accused of, you know, helping the uh, people defend forces. And especially, you probably remember a few weeks ago when they fired uh, heroin weapon into village in Kaya State and also in Karen State. So. You don't know what they're going to do and you don't know when they're going to fire these mortars. And this is the worst thing to be an IDP in your own country, your own backyard, you know. And there was no, there's no rule and there's no, how would I say, rulers. Because um, the rulers are become your killers. And um, you have rice in your rice store, but you cannot go back to your village because... Um, they will arrest you or they either they take your loot, they take your rice, they, they bring into their houses. So uh, it's not safe at all to be an IDP right now in Burma. So when you're a refugee and you cross the border into Thailand, you don't have to worry about an airstrike in the same way that you do when you're still within the border. Like you can't sleep, I guess, as soundly. Correct. When you cross it into an, another countries uh, into Thailand, let's say, at least um, they cannot go and bomb you. They cannot. They might. They did or one or try to try to fire into Thailand, but then Thailand uh, will uh, retaliate and say, "Look, you cross the border. You cannot do that. Uh, you still live under restriction in Thailand. You're not. Uh, we were not allowed to leave Thailand uh, legally because we did not hold an, any." Possible any uh, paper document, so you still lived under restriction within the cap. But at least you are not. You know you are not going to be attacked uh, by the Burmese military. You know? So you you felt a lot. Uh, I felt a lot safer in Thailand anyway back then. In in terms of the education, then A two because that is your ticket out of out of there, really, isn't it? And and not everyone gets that opportunity. And, and you talk about how long it took you even just to finish one year. But it obviously, it, it kind of highlights that there must be some really good people in these camps who are teaching and setting up schools. And like, is there a community spirit that, that we, or we've seen so many times in Myanmar? There's just something so special about the people who want to help anybody, even when they have nothing themselves. Yes, and when I went there, I was surprised. Um, we must remember that um, during 1988 uprising, a lot of uh, hundreds and thousands of students left the cities toward the time of Miss Border also. So um, a lot of them were well-educated. Um, so um, the one who were at the university at the time, 
I became teacher in the camp, the camps along the border. So I was lucky to be able to go to school where my most of my teachers were university, former university students. Just a year previous, you know, yeah, before me, uh, who went to the time also. So yes, the community spirit was very good at the time, well organized. And, but then the population was very small back then, so it was easier for people to to organize us, I suppose. But it, everything was very basic, you know. They have we we have very few and few things, no materials whatsoever. So I remember my teacher just came with a Burmese teacher came with uh, just a notebook, and uh, in her notebook, uh, notebook was uh, poems, Burmese poems because she has no curriculum to teach her. So she would um, talk to her about her university life in Rangoon. And then after that, uh, she just wrote down her poem. Uh, yeah. And then we learned that. And eventually books and uh, other things came after a year or two. It took a while, but to start with, we, we had very, we had nothing really to, and you probably remember um, that uh, I spent about two months learning, uh, going to school under the tree, and we, uh, the teacher, our teacher, put up the blackboard on on the tree. And if it rains, you have to find houses. You run to the house and stay there with the family for a good hours, and then you went back to your class. And by the time you went back to the your room, it was muddy and soaky wet, you know, so, but at the same time, it shaped you, really. It, it, I, I think my experience really helped me to become a, not a better person, but to prepare for the tough, you know, the toughness and the harshness that uh, you, your life gives sometimes, you know. So I think I've learned a bit from my experience, I think so. And when you say too about your sister and like taking six months to to get to get a, a message sent to you that she had she had passed away in labor was it giving in childbirth she passed yeah. away yeah I mean I mean I, I guess that would be something that would happen regularly because of lack of access to healthcare uh, even today yeah I think so I mean today uh, for example if you think about Karanga Chin Kayaste and Chin State. For example, let's, let's talk about Chinstay Minta is a town where it has, it has been cut off for quite a few weeks. And imagine, uh, I'm sure there have been a lot of women with, you know, pregnant, you know, pregnancies and who just gave birth with no nursing doctors. So, yeah, I think it might be terrible. And uh, I just saw a few women give, give birth on the roadside, you know, with no nurses. And I saw women give on pickup truck because the road is so uh, windy and up and down. So the labor was in the truck. And then by the time before they went, they got to the clinic or hospital, the baby was born. You know, so this, this are the story not, it's never made up. You know, it's, it's, it's true and it is there. You can see today in, in, in Burma. And lack of uh, medicine, um, lack of medicine because the regime did not open the, the routes for people with access. There's no access to the people. And then, for example, uh, there were about two trucks full of rice sent from Rangoon to Kaya State. And then they stopped it in Songshan State and they burned all the rice. So, this kind of thing. So. Yeah, it is it's desperate. And I think my sister died because she was in a rice field where it is. it would take her a long time to get to a clinic. And she did not have, they did not have back then, they did not have uh, transportation. So it took the chance by, you know, gave birth, I mean, with some ladies. And then um, I, I don't know what happened, but the story was they, she died and the baby did not survive either, you know, during the labor. So it was obviously a pain, you know, such a terrible uh, way to go, really. So I never got to see her. Um, and yeah, and I never actually met my, my brother-in-law is also, you know, 
after that, and he just this feedback to the society, I suppose. And Ato, you you mentioned about your mother, and she's in her nineties. Um, mm-hmm. And this would be would this be her third military coup? Well, you said she was actually she experienced the Japanese. Yeah, we're going back yeah. that far. Yeah, so um, forget about the Second World War. Um, okay, so sixty-two was the was have been the first one uh, that uh, she went through. She was already married by then sixty-two, and then we have seventy-five, and then eighty-eight, and then two thousand eight. That's a cut, really. <laughs> That's a small one. I just a brief. Yes, a few military coups, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy when you think about it that it's still happening. Um, did you ever think in 2021 you would see this again? To be honest, I, I knew that it would. It could still happen. I, kinda, I, I thought it could still happen, but not this scale, that they will, went on to kill like, you know, like this. And then, on the other hand, I did not expect this the, that the people would really fight back the way they are doing now. So I think a, a whole new, new generation uh, of yeah fighting the old regime, you know. Just in terms a two of this new generation, there is these huge protests that we saw back in February and March. Even though they have quietened down because of the bloody crackdown, people will never forget how many people were out on those streets. The military can't undo that. People know how the majority of the country feels. And I think the people have made it clear that they do not accept this military illegal takeover of the country. So there is kind of hope, as you say, in the, in the, in the sheer amount of people who are standing up to the military and, and this bringing together of the different ethnic groups. Um, but it's not going to be solved overnight. I, I guess it's, it's going to be a long, a long battle. I think so. Um, it is going to be a long battle. To be honest, um, we have to be very honest with ourselves, you know, without the help from the outside community, you know, international community. I don't think we will win because the reason for that is because they have built their infrastructure over so many years. Uh, we talk about 55 or 60 years. And they've got support from directly from China and Russia, which is make, uh, which makes it so difficult for the, the ethnic and the Burmese people um, and we are, even though we have in numbers, we have thousands over hundreds and thousands over, but they have the weapons. They have um, uh, not only the weapon, they have the technology, you know, given them from Russia and China. So um, it's, it's very hard for us to, to fight them. You know, we're talking about militarily and politically. But we still uh, hope, you know, because they cannot go on to kill us, all of us, because there are 45 million Burmese and the ethnic together. So I think that the, the only way they can defeat us or de- defeat us is go on killing. But I think the more, as I said earlier, the more they kill, the more they will get it back, you know. So I, I, it's very difficult to say at the moment, but I think people will... People will not give up easily, Suzanne, really, because we have seen enough that. And if we give up now, what about, do we easily forget about people who've been killed? You know, there are about thousands of people already been killed. So, you know, it's not easy to forget them easily, really. What role can the military play in Myanmar's future? Because as much as they can't kill all the people, there is so many people in the armed forces. You can't kill all them either or put them all in prison. It's not realistic. So how, how does well, compromise happen or can it happen? It can happen, you know, uh, because the, the role of the military is to protect the people, to protect the country, not to kill the people. So um, for many years, they have been lying to the people that oh we the ethnic try to take over the northern part of the state the the current try to take over the current state that's never been the case they are trying to take over everything this is the problem so the as i say the the military role is to protect the people so 
what they can do is look they release on sasuchi they, they they have to release on sasuchi they have to release the uh, president Uemir, and then um let them do what they need to do to develop the country you know the military has a job where they can help the government by protecting the people from foreign invaders or whatever who nobody will evade them anyway so um the top general can help can side with the people now i do believe personally that there are quite a few military top generals who do not want this and that they need to be brave and speak out and step out and say look this is wrong and we need to stay uh, we need to stand with the people but so far no uh, no military has done that yet only the lower ranking officer you know and a lot of uh, soldiers have done that but not the top one yet yeah so i hope they release our sushi and then they come together to talk and then just step aside from the uh politics and then just do what military should do like look at around other country in the world you know uh indonesia step uh step aside and let the politician do what they need to do and they need to listen to the people you know the main thing is the voice of the people is the main thing i think they cannot ignore this if they really want a democratic democratic society especially place like burma so that you have to you have to listen to the people and the ethnic otherwise this this will go around in, in a circle yeah you, you said that they were they were lying previously when they were attacking the current people and saying that they they were starting it and that the reason that that they were doing it was because they were de- defending um but you've also said how united people have become between the ethnic minorities and uh, how they're working together now i just i find it so hard to understand how military officials are now still able to convince their soldiers that they are still fighting in defense there, there there is no argument there it they are attacking the people you can't make any kind of rational argument yet we're still seeing these brutal attacks on everyday normal people mm-hmm. and it just like you like you said rightly said a military's job is to protect the people and there's not even a process going on right now that you can lie and and pretend that this is a, a one individual state that just wants independence these there's too many different groups that are united it's like you say it's pretty much the 45 million people so i just i really struggled to understand how they're still convincing soldiers to carry out these orders yes i agree with you i think the the this soldier have been trained in a particular way to had been brainwashed to do to take order and to do what they are told that that's it if you don't do that you got a very harsh punish harsh punishment and even though there i'm sure there are a lot of um, uh, officers you know military officers who know exactly what's happening is wrong uh, but um they cannot do much because a lot of rumors going around say that um a lot of their family members has been kept you know uh, as um they've been kept in the inside their military outpost and then they could not if they if their husband uh, def- defect or you know sign with the people and then they they will be in trouble and this is how strict they they have gone and um so it, it is very impossible for the very very hard to maneuver you know under the very strict control and uh, yeah it's very hard the only way they can escape is where they they are in the battlefield and fight the ethnic groups and a lot of them were desert and we do have we do hear story then they during a fight they easily surrender easily and Uh, especially in Korean area, I have seen a lot of them yeah, uh, so far in Korean Kitchen State. So the the will is um, the morale is quite low in, in, in their troops, you know. But they, on the other hand, the morale is very high. Even though we are very poor armed, the morale is very high. So we don't know which way it is going to go. But uh, our job is to keep people to keep each other together and not to give up, you know. And A2, is there a role that countries like 
Thailand, border countries and countries like Ireland and the UK, is there more they can be doing to help refugees or people who have been forced out of their homes? Like what more can these countries be doing to help these people? Realistically, um, we talk about ASEAN, Thailand, um, Malaysia, Singapore, India, around that, those countries are very, very important. And I'm very disappointed, I must say, you know, so far with the ASEAN, uh, I'm frustrated also with they have a stand on this, the whole thing, you know. For example, Thailand has been very good and I, you know, don't get me wrong, and I've learned a lot from that. But um, they make the most of COVID-19 and then they say, look, for example, they do not let the new refugee into Thailand, into Thailand. So there are kind of a lot of refugees who fled their homes a few weeks ago and stranded right on the border. So what they could do is at least they could pressure the military uh, to have access to people who are desperate for food only. You know, we talk about rice, we talk about water, clean water to drink in Kayasin, Korean State, again, Chin State. And they don't seem to do enough, you know, ASEAN countries. So they need to pressurize the military to let the food supplies to reach those who need them. And this is the main, this is my worry. You know, people need to have uh, food every day. People need to have um, medications, medicine every day. And uh, now people are dying because of COVID and people are dying because a lot of them already had pro health problem before the coup. You know, so it's very desperate. I, I don't know how to describe it because they, they have, even like uh, they have no rain plastic sheet to, for the shelter. And if you have a lot of money, you cannot buy things where you, because there are no supplies anymore. For example, if sometimes we, we, we help each other, we, we, we transfer money, it's, it's got through. But you have some money to spend, but there's no product, there's no things that they need, like medicine, like uh, medicine, water-proof uh, things, and supplies still okay now, but we don't know how long it will last. And this is um, rain, heavy rainy season now. So this is the time where a lot of, especially in ethnic area, are growing their rice. And um, it seems that they are not, they will not be able to grow their rice. So this is a very worry for me, you know, personally, because most of my Kayan people will survive on rice. So, and this is the only way they, they survive. So if they're not going to grow rice, then they need some uh, kind of a root to get to them so that they get uh, rice. Otherwise, you know, we, we eat rice three days a week or three times a day in, in, in Myanmar. So if we have no rice, it's, it will be a disaster, really. So like humanitarian routes or corridors are, are really important in order to get the, the supplies in. As you say, some people have money, maybe not a lot, but enough to buy food, but there's no supplies. They have no way to get food. There's nobody there. And that's, yes. that, that is one of the simplest ways the international community can support Myanmar right now, which is making sure that simple things like food can get to the people who need it. Yes, exactly. Food and medicine... And um, it's a worrying thing that because um, if they do not find anybody in the village, they burn the houses down. And this, like, um, this kind of human rights violation need to stop right now. Because people are worried enough and they, they, they left their villages. So eventually, hopefully one day they come back. They need to come back to their house. You know, at least they, they can have a house and their land to, to re rebuild their life. But if you go back to your house and you did not find your house because you, the soldier burned the, your house down, then uh, yeah, it, it will be desperate. So they need to stop. The military need to stop burning people's houses. They need to stop arresting children and uh, mothers who have nothing to do with these whole things, you know. So um, country like Ireland and UK, um, can do a lot more. I know they've been doing well at their best in Ireland and England, um, but they can do more um, by sending help, yes, as aids. And especially they need to 
speak out more in European Union, whichever way. I know they have done a, a lot as much as they can, but if there are any other channels that they can do, then they should. They should. Like if we, if we look at your story, A2, it might not seem it, but you, I would consider, and you probably would as well, you as one of the lucky people from your state who, even though you have spent your teenage years walking through a jungle, you've survived malaria countless times, you've lost family members, you have spent 12 years in a refugee camp, taking years and years to get your education, but you live freely and safely, you have food, you can sleep at night, which is not what the majority of the people in Myanmar or, or, or in your state have right now. But your story is incredibly sad. As much as it's uplifting, I mean, that is not okay either, you know, the, the, what you've been through. Um, but we just know so many have been through so much worse. I thought, yeah, you are right, uh, Suzanne. I thought I was very unlucky and I was not happy to be in a category to, to grow up as a young man into an adult in a refugee camp. I was very frustrated because I was very outgoing. I was looking for things to do all the time, you know, and, uh, but I did not have any, so I thought I was very unlucky, but actually I was lucky, you know, compared to what the children now are going through because back in 1988, the end, they did kill people, but they did not open people's uh, guts. And, you know, you saw some picture uh, nowadays. That's terrible way of to, to torture and kill people, you know. So, and and when I was a young, uh, young boy, um, as I said, technology was not there. So, um, you kind of get used to the situation, but young children this day, and we talk about 21st century with the technology, they are up to date, they are engaged with the world, you know, they are, they are ten, they, I think, look at my children, they are, they are more vulnerable to sensitive issues, you know, uh, and so exactly what I'm thinking about my nephew nieces, that they must have been terrible, you know, every day, Every night, go to sleep with a thought that when are they going to come? The minutes are going to come. When are they going to fight? You know, so constant worry is is not good for your 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 life, especially when your children. You know, so yeah, uh, it, it's it's very tough. And I'm I'm lucky that I'm here in in Ireland where I can just look at the new. But on the other hand, I do go to sleep with the same worry with exactly like they are because I've been through it with myself and I still have my family there. So it's not easy for me, you know, personally, it's very hard. I think what's becoming increasingly apparent to myself, and I don't mean to speak for you, Suzanne, is just how lucky and how much we've taken for granted being born into the countries that we've been born into. And I wouldn't describe your situation as lucky or unlucky, but you are an inspirational person to have been through what you've been through and to be able to talk about it, how you have and empathize with, with how people are going through just a horrendous time that should have been ended. So before this should never be happening again. And the fact that it keeps happening your resilience and the, the way that you talk about it is, is just absolutely astonishing. And I'm kind of sitting here in awe listening to the way that you're reflecting on this horror that you've been through and that you know that your loved ones are still going through um, by this awful regime that should should have been stopped. It shouldn't, this yeah. shouldn't have happened again. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. My, my worry is also that um, when they push one ethnic out, they bring their military families, you know. So um, if, if we talk about Korean state, hundreds of Korean villages of villages were, you know, abandoned. And thousands of Korean refugees moved to, I mean, Korean became refugees in Thailand and then they eventually came to Ireland. We have about 200 Korean community in Ireland. And UK, you have about 1,000 Korean in Sheffield, for example. But after that, when you left, because they push you out, they bring their military, and then they, they establish, they set up military outposts around Korean state everywhere, and Kayan state and Kachir state. So we, f we feel like um, 
travel to maneuver us out and then they bring their own family. So should these people escape to other country or should they start to stay put and fight? It's, it's, it's down to personal um, choice, I suppose. So we we hope, um, Ruth, though, uh, that we don't have to go when, you know, I hope that the situation will not go worse than this, you know. But then people talk about there will be another a big uprising where people are probably trained, you know. So all sorts of these rumors does not help people, you know, just give more worries to the people inside. So one thing I've been doing is every week I talk about people phone bills. Uh, every two person, so I pick... I pick every two person each week, so I, I top up their phone and just say thank you. Sometimes I don't know who they were, but um, we have a friend in common, and I say, look, I'm out of cash. I need some phobia, okay, 20 euro here and there. But I mean, encourage people to do also, because at the end of the day, I don't want them to go without bill, because I want to know what is going on there. So I, I, I talk about one five euro for somebody who I don't know very well, but I felt would that be enough? And he said, oh, thank you so much. You know, it's interesting you say that, Etu, about just a simple thing like topping up a phone. Even when I was there in February and the internet went, it is a scary thing to have no information and no communication. And that was something people even did for me where they topped up my phone because when the internet was cut, you couldn't just top your phone up in the shop anymore. That was gone too. So we were just totally cut off. And I'm living, you know, in a Western apartment with security. So I can only imagine for people who have no access and they're out there not knowing if the military are, are advancing on their village, ready to burn it down. So um, that communication is key so that they can even send a message to the other village or, you know, to, to warn each other of what's coming and to pass information if yeah. somebody is sick or needs help. Um, so it's a small gesture, but it, it goes a long way. Exactly, exactly. And I want to touch base and say two more things here for which I forgot. My experience from the early 90s was that, let's say about 20 villages in one part of Kerry disappeared suddenly. What the sad thing about that is the, the language and the, you see, Kaya people, I'm just, I mean, focus on Kaya state because you know, I know it better than other states. So um, Kaya, our Kaya people are very, uh, very basic and obviously I say we are not, we are very behind and we still, um, kind of very closely knitted, you know, closely tied together. And we have a little, a little culture there, you know, a subculture. So, and a lot of Kayan people are not Christian, are not Buddhism, you know, are, are no Muslim, they are more like traditional way. And we lost that, you know, we, we, we completely lost Easter Sunway River was in the way of life completely lost uh, within 25 years. So those people who, who were uh, in the east part of San Luis River ended up in, in American many times, they could not rebuild in or reconstruct their way of life for their children because their children speak English or, or Sweden or, or Finnish. And they can only watch the, the way their parents celebrate their ceremony, you know, traditional ceremony. I think this is very sad for me. If you go around in, in Ireland, you, you have caves, you know, and that tell you a lot of story, you know. And then you have, um, how would I say, where people, they kind of mow, whatever, and then they seem to be think rocks around. There's a story, you know, um, if you, you go to Glen Law, for example, near Dublin, you know, that kind of thing. But in Kiyas State, we have that, but they, it's gone because it's need to it's need to be looked after. And over the 25 years, we could not, it has been, you know, abandoned. So there's something lost in there. It's a sense of belonging, you know, uh, it's lost. It's one thing in the culture, it's lost and language we lost. And also uh, the most, uh, this, this, the very bad thing for me is because I was desperate as a child to learn, you know, my interest was particularly in music, but I had never had a chance until 
I was 20 years old to be able to have a guitar, you know. So education is, is the most important thing for me, I think, after the food. Because um, now the children have not been able to go to school for two years. Because before the coup, we had more than a year, we had uh, previously COVID-19. And school was closed. And then they could not back, go back to school. And then the military took over the power. So we talk about two years with no school for the children. So uh, they are not learning anything in village, you know. So this is really worrying for me. I don't know how they're going to teach their children in the jungle, you know, in village. So as far as I know, there's no school still. But the, the one who turned up on the border will have basic schools. You know, so it, I, I don't want to encourage people to go to the border also because, you know, you have to risk everything again. So, um, yeah, it's, it's desperate. It's very hard. When you say that, A2, about the culture and your language and the things that are unique to your ethnic group, we've seen this, like, time and time again with the military and you know we've heard the terms ethnic cleansing and you know them trying Mm. to eradicate a whole way of life a whole people and they have done this time and time again there's evidence countless reports from human rights groups on this and they've never been stopped and they've been allowed to continue and and i i know what you're saying about those historical sites that will not be there because nobody is in the villages. They've been burnt down. There's nobody left. And eventually people end up in in refugee camps or some lucky people may get to go to another country and resettle. But I guess everyone has a longing to go back home. That that is home. And I I guess that never leaves you, does it? I've been in Ireland for 21 years, Suzanne, and I still miss my home. You may see because a, a sense of belonging and also the human, that you know, a sense of humor is different. I, I love Irish people and, and a lot of situation is like us. You know, we like drinking and we like chanting. We like a little bit of crack, like they said. But you, you still feel like you want to be. With, when, when I meet somebody from my country, there's so much I want to talk to, you know, about. Because, you know, it is, it's come with your, you're born with it, something that you're born with, I suppose. So, yeah, you always, you always want to go back uh, to the country that you were born. This is me anyway, and I, I believe it's happened with this, a lot of people. But if you are, if my children were born here, so I'm sure they, they feel like this is where they belong, you know. So, yes, um, but again, I'm lucky that I'm able to speak my own language and also Burmese and English so I kind of can still communicate with my the people back there and obviously technology helped but the children who are born here do not feel the same because they grew up here and their friends are Irish they speak Irish they've seen different things that I, I went through so I talk to my children about what's going on oh really that's bad oh you know that's all they, they can say but they don't understand because they have not seen it, you know. I think that this is something Ruth and I have discussed a lot as well, that, you know, we could turn on the news and, you know, we could see horrible things around the world, but we have a special connection to Myanmar because we lived there and that was our home and they are our friends and you know you know I think Ruth you were saying the last day that like the street you lived on is where people are now being shot you know so for us it it feels very real and it's very hard for us to be here and not do something and even if it's a small thing like talking to you and getting your story out there and trying to just keep the conversation going because we feel a lot of guilt that we're yes. here and exactly. we're not there and, and we want to use our voice because so many cannot use their voices and we need to help them while it's safe for us to do so and it may not be safe for them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And let us not forget about the Rohija uh, Suzanne, because you, you mentioned earlier, we talk about the, the loss of um, language and culture. You know, less than 10 years ago, uh, that's exactly happened in, in the Iraq state. And um, sometimes I just don't know how long it will take 
the international communities or the the world to to engage. Um, but is there a way that they can do? I don't know. But it's a very frustrating. You know, uh, I thought the Rohingya issue was very good, and uh, then the old, uh, the same old military tricked people to believe, to, you know, to dislike the Rohingya. And then now we Rohingya come together with us, so they they have a way of pulling things, you know, pushing people and pulling, uh, divide and rule, like people say. And but we have to be alert as long, I mean, not to fall in that track. For you, A2, like when when the Rohingya crisis was being reported, I, you could relate to that because you had seen all that before, you know. And I think that now a lot of people who maybe never saw that before can now, they're seeing it in Yangon, they're seeing it in Naypyidaw, they're seeing it in Mandalay. So they can now relate to this because we have people being killed in the cities and tortured and you mentioned their their bodies being returned to their families with their organs taken out just just horrible inhumane acts and people can now start to see through the military's lies and this trying to get these groups against each other and realize that we're all human we're all connected and People should be allowed to have their own beliefs, their own religion, and, and live peacefully in their own lands. Yes. And the other thing, Suzanne, I'm, I'm thinking about women and women's arm. Because having seen my mother stronger during those years where my, my father left her, you know, it's, it's, it's so painful because um, we were very young. And I was only four years old when my, my dad left. I didn't know anything. But as I grew up, I realized it was so hard on my mom, you know. I came from a big family. I have five brothers and five sisters. And uh, imagine to feed about at least six young children at the time. Um, it, it was so hard on my mother, you know. Um, so there's a lot of mothers still going through it now today as, as we're talking to each other. You know, a lot of young men and women left their home and leave their mothers. Their father are gone. And the whole countries, a lot of families are broken, really, literally, into pieces. And every day I've been reading the news, and, and the Irwandis are very good, uh, and the Burmese uh, BBC. This morning they said uh, a mother lost her son and then her daughter to the protest. And all she has herself, so she, but she never gave up uh, for leaving just to leave. Konswaya Mohinga and the, the Burmese um, special noodle uh, she, she, for her survival, you know. This kind of story keep you, keep you really keeps me going, you know. I can't, uh, you know, not, I cannot do anything. I have to do something. So anything that I, I can do, I do. So I cancel all my trips this year. I was supposed to go to England to a nice housewarming of my mother-in-law, and I, I, no, I don't want to go. So I cancelled that early. And then um, my wife's cousin invited us to her wedding. It's a very nice one. And I cancelled that again because I want to do things for my country, you know. And the chips, I mean, the, the tickets, the Rhino is so cheap, but still, that's safe life. I'm thinking of if you too, <laughs> Suzanne, if you're a good singer, I'm thinking of busking because um, Kalani is very touristy. And then the other day I, I did a, a little bit of research and went to town and people, uh, one, two guys singing and, and, you know, American tourists are coming back to carry and they put in a few dollars and I got an idea. I've got to learn Irish tunes. And I, I rang Stevie, my friend, Carla, you, you met Steve, Stevie. <laughs> And I said, I'll always join you. And he, just, Steve is a quite good singer. And I said, Steve, look, I can I can sing Irish tunes. So if you you need to have at least 20 songs, I can help you. But I can't sing Irish one, but I can sing English one. So <laughs> I'm thinking now doing the busking so that I can save up for something, you know. I want to give some money to women who need money for the women's staff. So everything, everything that we... I can do will be very important, you know, 20 years later time, you know, they don't, they don't need anything. They might not need anything, but right now people need things. So I encourage everybody who I meet, just, 
you know, do something that you just like me and you talk to each other is good enough and we can share with our friends to keep people going, you know. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A H N A H. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.